Praise, praise, praise God and good morning again to everyone and everyone who has joined us to hear what God has given me to share this wonderful day. I am going to be talking about my favorite subject, Christ, and who God is and what he has done. So we're going to go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning as your people who are needy. We are the children of weakness and we pray that we'll find all that we need in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know of the things that are happening in the world, the news of instability, but that's not the good news. We bring the good news of a salvation that was accomplished by Christ Jesus. And this coming by way of a reminder to remind us of who he is and what he has done and what that should mean to us. We thank you, Lord, for all those whom we have gathered to this message. May you grant them ears to hear. We ask for a blessing and we pray always in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I hope you had something to eat this morning because we have a long message. <laughs> Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. We've been there before already, but we're not done yet. Apostle Paul says by the Holy Spirit, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, they just shall live by faith. And that is the title of our message, they just shall live by faith. And we go back to Paul again to work the understanding of what he called God's gospel, the good tidings from God. And we are going to be in the Old Testament for the last part of our message. God has a gospel. God has as a broadcaster. It's not only CNN, Fox News, and all these other guys who are broadcasting things, most of them, if not all of them, are broadcasting fake news. But this broadcast from God is the real news. That's the real news. That's the glad tidings. And he calls it God's gospel. And there must be some good news if God calls it good news. If anybody... God alone knows what good news should look and sound like. And I'll say a ceasefire between warring nations is only good news to the parties involved, especially the one that was in the weaker position, weaker and vulnerable position, 
and tended to suffer the worst outcome of that conflict. And so the gospel is only good news to those who hear it as sinners. We have nothing to bring before God to make it right with him, to make peace with him. And that to say when a person is still talking about their own law-keeping, their own free will salvation, then they still have not understood the terms of war or of peace. They are not hearing what God is saying. The one who has heard from God says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be propitious to me on account of Christ, me, the sinner. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, if you are willing. That is sovereign grace teaching. That's God's gospel. But the gospel is much greater tidings than the pronouncement of peace between sinners fighting against other sinners. Peace treaties between sinners do not last very long. If you know anything about history, Hitler, for example, was notorious for breaking treaties as soon as he had made them. He would make a sign a peace treaty today and the following week he would go and invade the same country that he signed a peace treaty with. But the gospel is good news because of the matters that are concerned and who it is, who is involved and we have to deal with. God's justice will not acquit a sinner without payment, a sinner without propitiation, a sinner without satisfaction. I've just said the same thing over and over. Without payment, without satisfaction, without propitiation means the same thing. God's justice will not set a sinner free, bless a sinner without proper payment. And so the scriptures declare to us that the soul that sins must die, and that means must be condemned. And that means it must go to hell. And the good news that Christ brings is that God has satisfied his own wrath for the elect by the suffering of his own son in their place and has made a permanent and irrevocable eternal peace treaty with them. God has made an eternal peace treaty with all the redeemed. He has given by imputation that righteousness that satisfies every one of his demands, and so he has agreed to meet with us, the sinners, based on those terms that he set and also fulfilled in Christ. That's the good news coming from his desk. But many preachers don't play the matter of the gospel in respect of what Christ accomplished. Because they are ignorant of the issue 
they are ignorant of the matter that is at stake. Many are hoodwinked or have been bewitched in the language of Apostle Paul in Galatians. They have been bewitched by passionate preachers who unfortunately tell a lie on Christ. You should not listen to a preacher because they are passionate. That is a way of deception. You need to hear what they are actually saying. You have to learn to listen and hear what they are saying. Define the issues. A preacher who does not define the issues of the gospel is most likely going to deceive you. Okay? They are a dangerous preacher. And unfortunately, this is the plague that has infected many who claim to know the gospel. They passionately preach or believe in another Jesus who did not finish the matter of salvation. And a Jesus who leaves you dangling at the International Space Station is a very bad Jesus for you. <laughs> you need better. Jesus cannot leave you at the International Space Station because that's not heaven. That's not the blessing of God. You need to go further than the International Space Station. And this is the Jesus that we have come to declare in God's gospel. But Paul says his gospel concerns Christ, his person and his work, and he called it also Christ's gospel. And it respects the declaration or broadcasting of grace and peace to God's people called the elect. The gospel is a broadcast, is a declaration of what has already happened. It's not waiting for you to decide for Jesus for the broadcast to become good news. Okay? And the elect of Christ are found not only among the Jews, but also the Greeks and the barbarians, and calling them to the obedience of faith. They elect from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. They belong to Christ. And this gospel puts all people, groups, on the same footing with respect to condemnation because none is righteous of themselves. But for the elect, it puts them all under the same level of footing of possessing the same righteousness that they did not and could not earn called the righteousness of God. The elect possess the one and same righteousness, the one and same holiness. There's no one who has different, who has a different level of holiness and righteousness who belongs to Christ. It's either you have the righteousness and holiness of Christ or you have none. <laughs> you have none at all. And this gospel apparently is also for the barbarians. 
as it is for the wise and the barbarians would be the foolish ones. And Paul said he was a debtor to both people groups to bring to both the wise and unwise the good news and also the offense. The offense is also the good news. It just depends where you belong. The barbarians would have been considered in the time of the day as an uncivilized and lowly people, lowly culture, because they refused to be assimilated into the Roman culture. They were not as advanced culturally as were the Romans and the Greeks of the day. And so the term barbarians. And that definition has largely remained unchanged to this day. Just don't call me a barbarian. We may have a fight. <laughs> the barbarians were considered, as I said, an unsophisticated people, untamable people. Yeah? They were rebels in many ways, and yet God came and said, he had his elect among them. People who may appear as rebels or barbarians to us are not necessarily forsaken of God. Because if you judge people by behavior and cultural civilization, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of God's dealings with men. And Paul could not have known that about election among the barbarians Unless the Lord Jesus had told him. He got that from the Lord. And that is why, and that is how he was made a debtor to them. He said, I'm a debtor, not just to those at Rome, not just to the Greeks, but also to the barbarians. And that is say, our gospel then must speak to both high society. This is what God is saying. Our gospel has to speak to both high society as it does to low society. Because both high and low society have one common issue. They have a serious problem. They have no righteousness of their own. They are under sin. And that to say one's position in this life has no bearing whatsoever to their eternal standing before God. One's position, no bearing to their standing before God. And so, there's the one thing that will bring conviction to both the high and the low, the highly civilized and the barbarians. The one thing that brings conviction to them is when the righteousness of God is declared to them. And the Holy Spirit giving them understanding, regenerating them, and giving them spiritual life. And so I can preach this gospel to the president, to Jeff Bezos, to anybody that God will grant ears to hear. I will speak the same to the sports stars and their millionaires and billionaires. I don't care. If the opportunity is there, we'll preach the same gospel and God will do what God does. But Paul says, Romans 1 verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And surely that was in contrast to the shame that the barbarians would have been construed to bring by the more civilized Roman and Greek cultures. The barbarians would have been viewed as very ghetto or even less than ghetto. Like the Scythians. The Scythians were the more depraved version of the barbarians. And Christ says, they are all one in me. <laughs> May have been considered the rednecks of rednecks of the day in our everyday understanding and balance with no hope of becoming better people, let alone being saved. And Paul brings the gospel and the offense and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So he adds more detail to the nature of that gospel and says it is the good news of Christ. He says it is the good news of the person of Christ Jesus. And that means it is important for us to have the right Jesus. We must have the right Jesus if we are to have the good news of Jesus. Because a false Christ, no matter how much preachers try to perfume him, is still a false Christ. Secondly, this gospel is God's power unto salvation. It actually saves sinners. It is power to save. And the power in view here is not power to stop prostitutes from being prostitutes or to make drunkards sober people. This is not alcoholic anonymous type gospel because there are many faithful people and sober people who hate the gospel of Christ. So this is not the power that Paul is talking about. It is not the power to transform one's life and make them a better person. That's not what Paul is talking about. This gospel tells the prostitute, tells the drunkard, and the moralist that righteousness cannot be found in them even on their very best day. And it makes them sober in respect of Christ to behold him as the only righteousness there is for them before God. So the power to save from sin is not speaking to your stopping sin because even if you stop your sin right now, apart from Christ, you are still under sin. There's no amount of stopping sin that will command a person as righteous before God. It doesn't matter how well you do it. You can lock yourself in some dark basement and never come out for the next 50 years. You'll still be as condemned as before. 
Okay? So, pause point is not transformation of life, but really the matter of real salvation. No imputation of sin to you and your righteous standing before God. And granted, to the redeemed, some things will change, some things will improve to one degree or another, but the matter of salvation is not of degree. It is complete. It is perfect. Okay? But the point is, this is the power of God that saves. But saves from what? It saves from all things that came upon you on account of Adam, on account of sin, death, condemnation, hopelessness. In other words, this power of God completely justifies a sinner from all their sins, those that they know of and those that they are not even aware of or paid for. That is the power. And Paul shall expound the matter of Adam later in Romans chapter 5 and will speak to the matter of sin and its relation to the law and its power in Romans 7 and the sinner's dilemma and hopelessness when encountered by the jewel of sin and law. Sin and law have power. They have dominion on everyone who is in Adam. And the power of sin is in the law and working together to produce death and hopelessness or an imprisonment situation from which none of us can set ourselves free. So that relationship between sin and law has to be understood. Please, when you mix sin and law, you always produce death. That combination was given by God to produce imprisonment to death. Okay? So our imprisonment was in our inability to produce righteousness. We could not, and even now cannot produce righteousness. And that inability produced death and condemnation. And that is why Paul understood by the Holy Spirit. When he understood things, he cried out. Paul did and said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Who shall rescue me from this body of death? This is about me now. Not about who shall deliver my country, who shall deliver my family. No, it's, it's me who shall deliver me. You have to begin with me. You have to begin with you. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And so Paul's dilemma and conclusion was that his situation, his imprisonment to sin. Yeah? Needed someone to set him free. It needed a who person. He changed the conversation. He needed a person who could set him free. And that would say, 
If someone is still talking about their own righteousness, they have not come to the end of themselves. Unless someone says or sees that they are a wretched man or woman and they need a whole person, then they have not been born of God. They still do not understand the issue. Romans 7, 18 and 19, Paul says, continuing on his dilemma, for I know. <laughs> this a lot of people don't know. Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I know. What do you know, Paul? I know that nothing good lives in me. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I want to do the good. But I cannot do it. The willingness is there. The mind is there. But the actual perform performance of it is not there. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want. But I do the very evil that I do not want. And Paul is saying. That's my conundrum. That's my dilemma. Yes I know the right things to do. But I can't do them. So who shall deliver me from this predicament? I need no more. I don't need any more commands of law. Do this and do that. To escape from this situation, I need someone. I need a person. I need someone qualified to set me free. And he said, he found him. <laughs> Thank God. For Jesus Christ. Because there is therefore now. No condemnation for those. Who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the good news. That's the broadcast. And this Christ. Is he whom he is now writing about. And preaching and saying. The good news of Christ Jesus. And I am not ashamed of it despite the offense that it may bring because of the way that God determined to bring it about through the cross. There's a lot of foolishness to the gospel, at least to the unregenerate mind. They think the message of the cross is foolishness. But to the saved, it is the wisdom and power of God unto salvation. Yeah? To the Jew. To the Greek and the barbarian. This gospel of Christ smells of life, but is death to the unbeliever. And this Christ, this Christ, this gospel removes the law as the center of attention with respect to the sinner engaging or dealing with God. Don't miss this point. It's very, very important because that's where the Jews were stumbling. This gospel removes the law as the center. And in the place of the law, Christ stands. And this is not an antinomian idea. This is not an anti-law idea. This is God's broadcast. This removes the law as the way to transact 
heavenly and eternal deals and says salvation is about the obedience that comes by way of faith, the obedience of righteousness, but not your obedience or your righteousness, but the obedience of another, not your faithfulness, but the faithfulness of another, and that is Christ. And so Paul will introduce to us the matter of the imputation of righteousness. Starting in Romans chapter 3 and going into Romans chapter 4, after he had successfully imprisoned everyone to hopelessness, both Jew and Gentile, saying both are under sin and are hopeless. Because the Jew did not do the law, so they were condemned by the law. And the Gentile, on the other hand, they were busy kicking it. They didn't care. They were just sinners. <laughs> okay? And God has purposefully shut everyone down from boasting that he may have mercy on some. So the obedience of faith is the obedience to the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. I repeat this because we have some preachers, renowned, reformed preachers, and some who claim to be sovereign grace, who when they see obedience of faith, they begin to talk about you and your doing. That's not Paul's gospel. The obedience of faith, listen again, is the obedience to the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, Christ's doing. It means agreeing with God that the faithfulness or righteousness of Christ is the only legitimate righteousness there is. And that this righteousness is already complete and enough to cause a sinner like you and I to stand perfect before God. Blameless. Above reproach. I am above reproach. <laughs> and this righteousness is not that which is imparted or infused to a sinner, but that which is imputed, the difference is between hell and heaven. An imparted righteousness, a righteousness that is infused, no matter how good in the eyes of men, will still fall short of the glory of God, and thus is not the basis of the good news. There's no good news in you doing anything. Okay? And that means to change the good news from the free imputation of righteousness to the impartation of righteousness is a denial of the good news. The good news says the righteousness is imputed. It is credited freely to your account without you doing anything. Imparted righteousness requires you to work. It requires you to get back on the treadmill 
and there's no hope in that, no rest. So imparted righteousness is a denial of the just grounds on which reconciliation and peace with God were made. God's justice settled and going about establishing your own righteousness. Okay? And any who do such, who teach that, who believe that, have become enemies of the gospel of Christ. But Paul continues and says, In this gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. If this righteousness of God is not by the free imputation of righteousness, then it is not the righteousness of God revealed. There's some preacher who was complaining, he made a statement two days ago, that these sovereign grace preachers always have imputed righteousness in their messages. <laughs> in other words, they talk too much about Jesus. And for him, that is supposed to be a problem. Don't talk too much about Jesus. Say some things about me. <laughs> the righteousness of God is revealed by way of Christ Jesus by way of his cross, and that coming to the redeemed through faith alone. Faith alone means by imputation alone. It has always been about faith in this righteousness, hence from faith to faith. Okay? But the faith not activating this righteousness. Your faith is not what activates the righteousness. Neither the faith nor righteousness are activated or caused by the sinner. Rather, God is he who brings the knowledge of it to the redeemed by way of faith. God causes the faith. Faith is a gift of God. So as is the righteousness, as is the Holy Spirit. Everything that God gives to his people comes by way of a gift, never end by anyone. And so the emphasis of faith means the righteous is not by what the sinner does or did. It comes apart from their works. That's the emphasis of faith. That's what faith means. It means a righteousness that is coming to you apart from you doing anything. And Paul says, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that is a very important gospel statement. The just shall live by faith. Or you could say, the righteous shall live by faith. It is associated or found where the matter of God, of how God makes a sinner righteous is concerned and is the bedrock and foundation of the claims and testimony that are found in God's gospel. When you read the New Testament 
and begin to learn about the matter of salvation and righteousness. You see that there are three statements that undergird the whole matter of how a sinner relates to God in the gospel. How God deems or sees a sinner as righteous before him. There are three statements. You know them, and I'm going to bring them to you. Number one, the just shall live by faith. That's Romans 1 verse 17, and also is found in Hebrews 10, 38, where the writer of Hebrews says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure no delight in him. And in Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the light of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That's statement number one, the just shall live by faith, and that is in contrast to their own obedience to God. Romans 3 and following, Romans 3 verse 3 and following, Paul says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's coming from Genesis 15, verse 6. And Paul continues and says, verse 5 to 8. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And that is coming from Psalm 32. The just shall live by faith is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Yeah? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, verse 6. The blessed man to whom sin is not imputed is coming from Psalm 32. And these are the foundational statements of the gospel and they come from the Old Testament. Okay? And the point is that all these doctrines are not new. That is why Paul said the gospel that was in the Holy Scriptures, but has now been revealed to us by the appearing of Christ. They are foundation to the gospel itself. So from faith to faith, that means from Adam to Abraham to Jacob to Miss Potiphar with Joseph's clock to Rahab, to David, God taught the same message of the imputation of righteousness. That is why we always talk about it. And now to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. God has always preached this way. Since revealing himself to his creation, it was true for Abraham as it was true for David. Even with all the shenanigans of Miss Pot... No, not Miss Potiphar. 
of Bathsheba. Bathsheba had to happen. Otherwise, you don't have Romans 4, verse 6 to 8. That came in the wake of Bathsheba. Psalm 32 was written on account of David and Bathsheba, which means God was behind what David did because he wanted David to write this matter for our own edification and knowledge of salvation. So if it was true for David and true for the Greeks and the barbarians and the Scythians, so it is true for you and I, the just shall live by faith. There's no other way. And that will take us to the book of Habakkuk to build on the context of the just shall live by faith as we shall do with the other doctrines when we get to those chapters. We'll go to the particular background that caused God to bring them to us. How God brought that teaching to us. And before we get to that, I must say, we must go through some sovereignty teaching because that is the context of the teaching. There's a lot of sovereignty. And if you are in Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet begins by questioning God's judgments and says the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So that the prophet had a vision which he called a burden that weighed on him that needed to be lifted up. And he had a question directed to God. He did not say, oh, may I speak to the management of this facility? (laughs) He took it up with God and said, oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear me. Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. The prophet did not say violence from who, but it seems to me, given the flaw of the text, as we shall find, this was violence happening in Judah, the southern kingdom, an internal struggle and a show of sin and depravity among the people of Judah. During the reign of one of the kings, possibly Josiah, but opinion is divided as to who exactly was on the throne at that time. But this is what we know. There was strife that was hounding the prophet. And he says to God, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me, the strife and contention arises. There's no peace. He says, God, why do you cause me to see all this wickedness that is around me and yet seem to be powerless or unwilling to do anything about it? And that is the same question that many are saying to God about the violence that abounds 
about planned parenthood, about disease, sickness, about the situation in Europe and saying, why are you not doing something about it? Where are you? The God who is silent. Are you powerless? And it is the age-old question of if God is sovereign and he is a good, a good God, why then does evil exist? But God will answer for himself shortly. <laughs> but Habakkuk continues and says, verse 4, Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. So according to Habakkuk, the law, it seems, has been paralyzed and corruption runs rampant. The law seems to have no power to contain, to restrain, to constrain this evil that surrounds him. And that surely is a faithful testimony of the law with respect to salvation. Because it is speaking of salvation of sinners. The law is powerless to stop the violence. The law is not able to make people better. It is powerless to bring salvation or to cause righteousness. The prophet by the Holy Spirit said it. The law is powerless. <laughs> and people on here. Are you saying the prophet was an antinomian too? <laughs> the law is powerless to bring salvation to sinners. How many treaties have been signed between nations and yet violence continues unabated? If you go and follow the Israeli-Palestinian situation, they've signed many accords, but violence still continues. But Habakkuk's judgment is against God. He is essentially saying or accusing God of sleeping on the job, of willful neglect or abandonment of duty leaving things to run out of control, at least from the way he saw things. He thinks that things are out of control in Judah. And this, unfortunately, is the theology of men who do, of many who do not know the God of the Bible. They speak sovereignty, but they do not know the works of the sovereign one. They have a sovereign one who is mad after their own image of sovereignty. <laughs> Here now, the Lord's reply, he shows up. You see, he hears these things, he hears the conversations. He had the conversation between Job and his friends. He allowed them to talk for 40-something, almost 38 chapters. He was listening into the conversation and then he shows up and says, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Where were you when I 
Do you know the time that the mountain gods give birth? Because I do. Do baby lions cry to you when they're hungry? Because they do cry to me and I hear them. Yeah? Hear the Lord's reply. Verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. Be amazed. For I work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. God says, pay attention to what is happening around you. Look at the nations. My hands are in it. And when you look with understanding, you shall be amazed. And the things that you see, you would not even believe. You would not even believe. Not only am I in control of the events in Judah, I want you to begin by looking outside of Judah to the nations. And then from there, I'll give you understanding and we'll come back to Judah. But what is this amazing thing that you are about to do? Verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Okay, stop. Lord, that does not solve my problem. Rather, it makes it worse. I was calling on you to come and deal with the issues right here in Judah, and yet you are telling me that you are raising up the Chaldeans to even compound the problem for us. We know the reputation of the Chaldeans. These are not good people. <laughs> Many things to say here. For those who don't really know the God of the Bible, it's a time to listen. What did God say he was going to do? He said he was going to raise up the Chaldeans. He was going to cause them to want to go to war. And to war with a particular people, his people, or any nation for that matter, he knows the Chaldeans. He describes them to us. And he says, I am behind their power. I am behind their success. They are an instrument in my hands. Their warring is not something that they caused in themselves. God is he who is causing it in them as his instrument. And very few preachers can say that without trying to remove the offense somehow and trying to blame the Babylonians. God does not blame the Babylonians. He takes credit for the actions of the Babylonians and says, I am raising them up. I am 100% responsible for their actions. And in many ways, God is behind the issues that the prophet is decrying in Judah. Here, verse 6 again. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, 
which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. So the Babylonians are the strongest nation at this time in history. God knows that they are a bitter and hasty nation and they don't play games. They are ruthless and they march through the breadth of the earth, defeating, conquering, and possessing nations, taking their stuff. Verse 7. God continues and says, they are terrible and dreadful. Not to him. <laughs> the Babylonians are not terrible to God. They are terrible to the nations. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. The New English translation says, verse 7, they are frightening and terrifying. They decide for themselves what is right. He says these people do whatever they want. And when they overtake, they just do whatever they want. They are their own law. In other words, they are wicked people. And yet, God is behind them. Hear now about their equipment of war and their abilities. Verse 8. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their charges charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. New English translation, verse 8. Their horses are faster than leopards and more alert than wolves in the desert. Their horses gallop their horses come a great distance like vouchers. They swoop down quickly to devour the prey. In our day translation, that is all saying they have a lot of sophisticated military equipment. They have tanks, fighter jets, bombs, submarines, drones, you name it. They have some powerful weapons of war that cannot be defeated. And that to say, all these nations that have the big weapons of war have them because God causes them to have them so that he may cause them to go to war for him. And this is not a new teaching. Isaiah 10 corroborates that very well, that teaching very well about Assyria and Israel as we shall shortly see. We shall go to Isaiah chapter 10 for that teaching also. But let's continue with Habakkuk 1.9. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand, like one scoops up sand, which means without any resistance. They come to do what? For violence. Look at all the big wars that have been fought. They are determined, God says, they are determined and are set in their mind as to what they want. 
set like the east wind, which does not change its direction, unchangeable on their goals. They are determined to do violence. Verse 10. This is their attitude. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. They scoff at every king. Any rebuke, they scoff at every rebuke from any nation, not from the United Nations. They deride, they mock, they ridicule, they are dismissive of every stronghold of power. They are hardened to accomplish their cause. They don't care what you have to say. They will seize their prey. And their prey will be seized because it is on God's orders to be seized. But now, here comes the real problem as far as God is concerned. It is not that the nation did wicked things. After all, God was behind all of it. God has concern against them, and it is one concern. Verse 11. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses, he commits offense. What is the offense? Ascribing this power to his God. God says, the issue that I have with these nations that go around plundering other peoples and nations is that they ascribe that power to themselves and not to me. Yet I'm the one doing it. He says they transgress against him when they ascribe power to defeat nations to themselves. God is not chastising them for beating up his people. He's chastising them for ascribing power to themselves. And saying, you are nothing. And that greatly offends him that he has to write it down. God is saying, I am the one who is plundering the nations. And so, do not ascribe my power to your own idols, not to your weapons, not to your planning, not to your technology. Because those things don't plunder a nation if I don't cause it. And that brings us to the matter of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because this is a huge topic in the matter of salvation. Men and women are responsible for their sins. But that does not mean they have ability to do otherwise. That does not mean they have ability to stop their sin. Also, God, this is offensive. Men will agree with that. But the next one is where the offense comes. God will cause men and women, to sin against him. God will cause you to sin against him. Not the devil. I said God will cause you to sin against him. Against him. 
and yet make you responsible for it. This truth is not known. Reform people, they will say God is sovereign and then they'll try to remove the offense. A lot of sovereign grace people will say God is sovereign but they'll remove the offense. No. Anyone who denies this truth does not know the God of the Bible. They're just skilled in human philosophy but not in the truth of God's word. This is what God is teaching as here by the testimony of the Babylonians. Let's go to Isaiah 10. And here God make commentary of this very doctrine using Assyria to punish his own people. And we'll pick up at verse 5. Verse 5 of Isaiah 10. God says, beware, Assyria, the club or the rod of my indignation, the club I use to vent my anger, a cudgel with which I angrily punish. I send him, look at the eye, I send him against a godless nation. I ordered him to attack. Assyria did not know anything about the God of the Bible. It was a pagan nation. God already said it. I ordered him to attack the people with whom I was angry, to take plunder, to carry away loot, to trample them down like dead in the streets. Now, did God send a message to the Assyrian king and said, Oh king, could you please get your guys ready and go punish my people, Israel? No. They just did everything. They were feeling like, I think we're going to just have to go to fight. <laughs> we are just feeling it. We have to go and fight Israel. Yeah? We have to go and fight Israel. And yet that desire and all the preparation was coming from God. That sovereignty. Let's skip to verse 12 of Isaiah 10. I don't want to go too much in that place. God says, therefore, it shall come to pass. When the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem through Assyria beating up his people, when I have accomplished my work, when I am done. So Assyria can only go as far as God has given boundaries. And in the history of nations, Assyria is recorded to be the most notorious army military ever in terms of brutality. And God says, oh, I'm bringing them up. Against my own people. But when I'm done, when I'm done with them, that I'll say, I'll punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks, his proud looks. He looks too proud, and I hate that. God is saying. <laughs> 
I'll punish this nation that I used to do what I wanted to do. Yes, I commissioned them as a rod of my anger, but I'll punish them because of their bad attitude that they had when they were doing what I caused them to do. I just don't like your attitude, even though you're doing exactly what I am calling you to do. So Assyria is being made responsible for a sin that God caused them to perform against his own people. That's being responsible and yet powerless to do otherwise. Assyria had no choice. They had to go and punish Israel. Babylon had no choice. It had to go and punish Judah. And yet God was behind it. And God makes them responsible. Let's keep going. Verse 18. For he, Assyria. And now you can open and close your brackets and say, For he, Assyria, Babylon, Russia, America, Britain, German, China, is next in line to gather the nations. Because that's what all these empires are doing. They gather the nations. They've been doing it over the millennia. This cannot just apply to Assyria and Babylon. It applies to every nation. But they all say the same thing. Hear this. They all say the same thing. Verse 18. For he says by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom. For I am prudent. I am wise. Also, this is Assyria making testimony. Speaking to their congress of the nations. By my hand I have done this. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people. I've withdrawn, I've redrawn the boundaries of the nations. And I've robbed their treasuries. So I've put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. I am a man of war. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. I found the riches of the people like one finds a nest. And as one gathers eggs that have been abandoned, effortlessly, no resistance. I have gathered all the earth. I have gathered all the nations of the earth like one gathers eggs that are found in a nest that is abandoned by the chicken. No resistance whatsoever. And there's no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. No one even chirped like a chick in resistance. I overpowered them. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. So now, so that's the arrogant heart of all the kings of the earth. The presidents, when they go to war, they're very arrogant. They trust in their means, they trust in their weaponry, they trust in whatever they're bringing. God says it's all arrogant foolishness. Now, God tells us exactly who was causing or doing the work behind the scenes. Verse 15. Shall the ex boast itself against him who chops with it? 
or shall the soul exalt itself against him who soars with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up, as if it were not wood. This is the declaration of his absolute sovereignty to say. There's not a single person or country or nation that is able to go to war and have victory unless if it is God who is wielding it in his hands and chopping with it as with an axe. Any country that is chopped is being chopped by God for reasons known to him. He is the wielder of the axe. And the nations are the axe head that he prepares and sharpens to do his bidding. The axe does not move itself. The axe cannot move itself. So there's no country, no people, no military that can cross the borders into another country unless God is wielding it. It has to be moved by the one who holds the handle <laughs> and who cut with as much power only as has been put in it by the wielder. So the nations are guilty for ascribing to themselves God's power. And none will go unpunished by the same God who uses them. Also, there's none who comes to Christ unless God is the power behind for them to come. Because with respect to us, he calls us clay and there's no clay that can mold itself. You have to be in the hands of the potter. The potter is he who makes the difference between one vessel and the other. And in the matters of the governance of this creation, even among the nations, God says, I'm the one who's moving the nations. There's no one who's making any decision. Okay? So when he is done, then this peace will come. So human free will in salvation and anything is wicked teaching. Because you are ascribing power to yourself that belongs to God alone. But back to Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk 1 verse 12. The prophecies. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. The prophet comes to the right conclusion and says, O Lord, you have appointed these wicked nations for our judgment and for correction. And that to say, God raises nations to use them for judgment and correction of other nations, but the nation that is used is not a righteous nation in itself. It has its own sins to answer. Thus, 
What is happening and has happened in this world is not about democracy and human rights, as far as God is concerned, but his rule over the nations. The Most High God rules in the affairs of the nations. We may go there with our own cause, but that's not the cause of God. God means something different. To be honest, nobody really knows why Ukraine is in trouble. No one knows. God alone knows. He knows the issues that we may not be aware of. Yeah? So, Habakkuk, having understood that the evil Babylon is in God's hands and is God's tool, he does not call God the author of sin or evil. Even though it is clear that God had taken responsibility for the works of the evil nation, raising it and granting it victory. Because people say, oh, God is not involved in this. There's no way. There's no way that God is not involved in anything. And this is the charge that is raised against us when we tell them, that God is absolutely sovereign and what he does is right not because it agrees with our sense of righteousness but by the mere fact that he is doing it. He is the one doing it is righteous by that very fact. If Assyria does it, they are guilty. If Babylon, if America, if Russia do it, they are guilty. If China does it to Taiwan, they are guilty. And yet he causes them to do the very thing he will punish them for. God does not allow them. No, he causes them. He says, I am raising that nation, the Chaldeans. He causes them. I do not like the language of allowing. <laughs> it is too weak. Okay? Habakkuk says, verse 13, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? The prophet says, Yes, Lord. You are holy and righteous. But how do you even approve of this? Because a lot of people say, well, because God is righteous, then he's not involved in the matters of evil. No, Habakkuk realizes that he is holy and righteous and yet is involved. <laughs> yeah, what he says. How do you approve of this? To bring a people more wicked than ourselves and bringing them on us for judgment. We should be judging them instead. I thought you would be saying, I'll go and destroy that nation and those who are causing us troubles, trouble here in Judah and those who are not following the law. No. He brings the wicked. And that's one of the reasons why Jonah was not too happy about the idea of going to Nineveh. Because Nineveh was the capital city of, of Assyria. And Assyria was a wicked nation. And God says, well, I'm going to send you to go preach to these people to bring them to repentance. And Jonah's like, what? 
punish these people first. They can't just repent. <laughs> God's holiness and righteousness does not prevent him from causing evil. God's holiness does not stop him from ordaining evil in his creation. His sovereign will and purpose in Christ requires evil. The glory of Christ requires evil because it requires the cross. And the cross cannot happen apart from the sin and evil of man, which thing Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and Acts 4, 27, 28, and said this was all predetermined by God. They all gathered together to do whatsoever your hands determined to be done. Yeah? So evil is part of the plan. It is God's plan. Evil does not exist apart from him. Do not be deceived. The devil and God are not fighting battles. God is not losing sleep over the devil. The devil is God's devil. He is a creature. He is not sovereign. After God is done with the devil, he has prepared a lack for him to do away with him. And if the devil was that powerful, he would say, no, I am not going in there. You can't. Okay. So there's nothing that exists apart from God's determination, will and power. And this is the hardest thing for even the reformed and many sovereign grace people and preachers to understand or even say because they are not speaking to the glory of God. They are speaking to the glory of man and they don't want anybody to say, oh, did you hear what he said today? He said God is the author of sin. <laughs> the rays of the sun. Hear me, someone. The rays of the sun touch and go through the dung but are never contaminated by it. And that is God. God raises and uses evil to do his bidding and yet he remains holy and righteous. That's the connection. The immutable one cannot be contaminated by sin. Okay? Verse 14. Habakkuk 1 still. Why do you make men fish? Sorry. Why do you make men like fish of the sea? Like creeping things that have no ruler over them. Why do you leave these guys to do whatever they want? Why do they do that? <laughs> Is understanding his thinking is, these guys are just doing what, whatever they want. But they are not doing whatever they want. Because God is controlling them. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. And gather them in their drag net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. And In other words, they are very successful with their ex exploits against their enemies. 
And afterwards, this is what these guys do. Verse 16, therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. They sacrifice to their net, in other words, to their means. They worship their false god. They ascribe power to their net, to their tools of war and say, we won because we have a better military. That's the net that they are worshipping. Instead of saying we won because God granted us victory. Okay? That's the difference. Verse 17. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Shall they continue to do the very thing? They go and gather the nations. They get their loot. They empty their nets. They worship their net, then they go back again. <laughs> so Habakkuk is protesting God's righteousness and judgment and governance of the nations and trying to use it to guilty trip God into action. And these are the protestations that are leveled against God's rule every day when the situation, as I said, like in Palestine, in Israel, happens in Ukraine and Russia, and all the conflict zones around the world, and the many things that happen in our nation, it appears like God is so far removed from them, like he is aloof, and yet God cannot be aloof in anything. God does not come ever to correct a problem that he did not first cause. Because there's nothing that happens apart from his determination. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul in Romans 11.36 says, And of him, and of him, which means from him, and through him, which means he empowers all things, and of him, and through him, and to him, which means to his glory, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, God is not a fire marshal. There are no ambulances in heaven. There are no fire departments in heaven. <laughs> Jesus is not a fire marshal. Okay? He is coming to finish the work that he already started. But let us hear God's response to Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. And make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And a lot of foolish preachers, prosperity preachers love this verse. And they'll be talking about, oh, your marriage, just wait, wait for it. Because it will surely come. <laughs> wait for your boys, he will surely come. <laughs> and they will just butcher the context of the story. God is talking about judgment. 
God says, surely write this thing down. The Chaldeans are coming. The Babylonians are coming. I've raised them. They're doing their preparations, but they're coming. They will not delay. Just wait and see. Verse 4, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but they just shall live by faith. But they just shall live by his faith. Behold the proud. Look at the proud. Who are the proud? They're the Chaldeans. But why? Because they ascribe power to themselves, which they do not have. So that is the definition of pride as far as God is concerned. It's ascribing power to yourself that you don't possess. The free willer people, the minions, are a proud people because their souls are not upright in them. They are spiritually dead because they ascribe the very power of God unto salvation to themselves. The matter of salvation from the power of sin and death. And they say, oh, it's my own free will. It's on my, my own power, my own decision. I chose, I decided, I walked, I did the prayer. God says, no, they're not upright. They're proud. And they're not better than the Assyrians or the Babylonians sacrificing to their own ness. And God says, he is not happy with that theology. God is not happy with that theology. And he's not happy with anyone who attributes power to their own doing whatever it is. But there is another group of people. In Dwabakuk, God essentially says, shut up. And deal with the situation. And stop worrying about the Babylonians. Because they're coming. Stop worrying about those in Judah who are causing violence. I'm not sleeping as you think. I'm teaching something. But what and why? But the just shall live by faith. The just man shall live and not die when the Chaldeans come to execute God's judgment. The just shall live when the Chaldeans who are an ex in God's hand to bring the judgment, only the just shall live. They shall live by his faith. The proud will perish, but they just shall live. But live how? The text says, pay attention again. They just shall live by his faith. His faith. Whose faith? The faith of Christ. That is why this becomes a bedrock understanding of the New Testament teaching of the gospel. They just shall live by his faith. Live, which means not die from God's judgment because the context is God bringing judgment on his people and those who shall live are they who live by his faith. Okay, Galatians 2, 15 to 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. 
Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The King James Version has that right. And the NET, justified by the works, that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Or by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's the proper rendering. And we've come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ. The just shall live by his faith. We are justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will escape the judgment of the Chaldeans. <laughs> Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 35 to 38. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, by trying to go back to the Lord that does not serve. Remain in the truth of the gospel. For you have need of endurance. That's essentially what is happening in Judah. The prophet is tired of the violence. He is giving up. And God says, you have need of endurance in spite of all the suffering. And the Christian community in the book of Hebrews was suffering. They had been taken away from their Jewish way of life, the temple system and all those things, and their whole economy centered around the temple and they're being persecuted on account of the gospel, and they're drawing back. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. What is to do the will of God? Is to believe in the Son. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Here kind of the language there too. He will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. <laughs> but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. And that came from the story of Habakkuk and his bed and because of what was happening in Judah, which problems were compounded by God, by the coming of the Chaldeans. But God says, they just do not look to their circumstances. They don't draw understanding from what surrounds them. They draw understanding and hope from God himself. They just trust him for life and protection in all things and from all things Enemies within and enemies without. Those enemies in Judah and enemies by way of the Chaldeans. And where this trust is, then also is the righteousness of God revealed in them because the faith does not come apart from the righteousness. They go together. It's revealed from faith to faith. And Habakkuk did not understand the breadth and depth of that statement. 
of the just shall live by faith in the way that we understand it now because the Holy Spirit has given us a more greater understanding by the coming of Christ. But God brought all that situation on Judah to just present this doctrine of salvation to us just as he brought Jonah to go to Nineveh. And the real point of Jonah going to Nineveh was so that God would preach the three days and three nights of Jonah in the world, in the world's belly. Just that. All that inconvenience to go into the mouth of the shark, or, no, of the well and get the slob, get slobbered by it. <laughs> Hear me? As I finish. The just shall live by faith. And that is say the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith in salvation in Christ and in his sovereign rule over the nations to cause them to do his bidding. God has the absolute right to do what he's doing and what he has done with the nations. He has every right to raise one nation, to go punish another nation, and then punish them also because they are sinners. He is righteous in doing that. And that people say, oh, you make God the order of evil. Well, you have no choice. He claims he does it. This righteousness of God is from faith to faith and literally it means out of faith in reference to faith. Out of the faithfulness of Christ in reference to the faithfulness of Christ. <laughs> because our believing is not the cause of the transaction. It is not the cause of the righteousness. It is from the faith of Christ and back to the faith of Christ. It's all about him. Okay. And that also means this righteousness, which is by faith, is unachievable by human effort or doing. That's why there's such an emphasis on it. It is unachievable by anything that we do. And if it is unachievable by works, then it can only be freely given. And if it is freely given, then it is through faith. Faith which is also given. <laughs> so the righteousness revealed is the righteousness that justifies from the judgment of the Chaldeans that God is bringing. So even when the Chaldeans are coming to exact judgment by God's doing, they just shall live by faith. And the Chaldeans are coming. The Chaldeans are coming. The Chaldeans simply represent the wrath of God. That's what the Chaldeans represent. The wrath of God is merciless. That's what God is saying. The Chaldeans are just a picture of his wrath. The Chaldeans are coming and they are two days away for some people, two weeks away, six months away, 20 years away, but they are coming 
And that means God's judgment is coming, but they just shall live by faith. They shall escape that judgment by faith. And because of Christ's faithfulness, because according to Jesus, he who believes has passed from death unto life and shall not come into the judgment of the Chaldeans. Amen. Praise God. We are done. <laughs> the Chaldeans are coming. Brothers and sisters, I pray the Lord blessed you. Okay? You know what happens when the Chaldeans are coming? They just shall live by faith. That's the news from God's news desk. Okay? All right. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again. And thank you for this time that you've given us to hear the testimony of Christ. Even through the testimony of the prophet Habakkuk, that the law was powerless to save them. And even more, the Chaldeans were coming as God's hand in judgment. And yet the Lord taught us the way out of it and said, the just shall live by faith. And may you cause the people to understand the simplicity of this statement. The just, the righteous, shall live on account of the faithfulness of Christ. And to this, our faith looks to. We honor you, we glorify you, be with us now going in and out, be with your people, wherever they are, and the situations that they're dealing with, may you deliver them. We honor you, glorify you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.